Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Bob Hunter. Bob has managed many of Canada's premier sports and entertainment facilities, including Skydome, now Rogers Centre, Air Canada Centre, now Scotiabank Place, Rico Coliseum, now Coca-Cola Coliseum, BMO Field, and BC Place Stadium. He also had a pivot to the world of transatlantic rugby with the Toronto Wolfpack and an even more extreme pivot to the world of esports, where he is currently up to his neck in alligators with the project to build a brand new 7,000-seat esports venue on the grounds of Exhibition Place. Welcome, Bob, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on the show, and I'm, I'm quite honored to be called a, a Toronto legend now, now that I've uh, accomplished that. But anyways, yes, I'm currently actually down south, uh, working out of here this week, back to Toronto on the weekend. The world of uh, working mobile certainly does work, and um, we have our architectural team in New York, and we have our engineering team in LA, and I'm sitting right here. <laughs> well, yes. I'm Glad you got south, get out of the uh, winter for a while. On that note, please give us the latest and greatest on the status of your new esports venue project. Love to. Um, we're in the throes of what many, many people are seeing right now, and that is cost crunch. Initial budgets that came back probably two months ago were far greater than we had anticipated, and unfortunately, much greater than our budget. So we're currently in, as they term it a value engineering minor redesign phase where we have to make those cuts that need to be done to get us back down to um, a number that works. It's all private money, it's all private investment, and therefore the appropriate uh, rate of return and return on investment uh, has to be met. So I would say that that'll take us another month or so will then get ownership's blessing to proceed. Uh, given where we are architecturally and engineering wise, we are still focused on being in the ground in September, October of this year. Excellent, well that's, and of course that would be the biggest step of all once you put shovel in ground. Correct, yes, absolutely. And we got lots of work to do prior to that, but certainly um, that is the, what do you call it, in the beachhead. We, yes. we set our, set our uh, place in the beachhead, so. Well, this is nothing you haven't been through before. We're going to go through all that, Bob. But if you don't mind, first, we're going to go all the way back, get your story. Where were you born? And talk about your upbringing. Uh, Hamilton, Ontario. I grew up in the booming metropolis of Waterdown. Went to school there. Went to high school there. University in Waterloo. And then grad school in the U.S. I really started my career at Ontario Place now being rejuvenated as we all know and uh i worked there as a summer student and then stayed on for about five years full-time that was then, such a happening place back then yes three million people a year you know the exhibition was certainly uh or sorry the cne was certainly uh more significant than it is today not saying that it isn't but more significant and so that uh entertainment complex at the time was one of few and uh and there was a little competition and then competition grew and we all know what happened sure but still the uh, amphitheater there today still does you know 40 shows and they'll do you know million people and and they do hope to revive it and we want to be part of that whole revival and yeah sort of the, a whole new entertainment district including all the facilities that are already at exhibition place well it's so, great that led me out west to Vancouver. Uh, they were building the stadium at the time. 
my boss at Ontario Place knew the boss at uh, then BC Place, and they connected, and I landed in Vancouver for six years. So. BC Place Stadium. This was a brand new facility where the BC Lions played, and then eventually the Vancouver Whitecaps. This was an indoor structure with an air-supported roof, the world's largest at the time, this being 1983. This must have been quite a project for you to jump into. It was, and, and uh, I've been blessed uh, with having good timing to get into these projects. I arrived there about uh, eight months before we opened, so it was still a lot of construction going on. Pressure was to be ready for June 1st working with the teams and working with the contractor and the architects and everything we 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 got it done it was needless to say down to the wire and there was a lot of work to be done after we opened but you know back then the lions were filling the place white caps came in that year as well and they were filling the place and so you had sixty thousand fans for major league soccer and so it it was a big uh happening in the city and um had the Grey Cup that year, and um, yeah, it was a very, very fun and exciting project to be involved in. Well, and another big project in that city was the Expo 86 World's Fair, which I presume had nothing to do with sports. Uh, it did not, actually. Um, the company that owned, and, and it was a pro- provincial crown corporation, a company that owned BC Place Stadium was uh, tasked with the permanent development in, at uh, the expo site. So I was asked to go over and oversee the venues that were actually going to stay. And they were mainly commercial or, or um, rental properties. And so we had uh, about 100,000 square feet of permanent space that we built uh, on behalf of the provincial government. And it still exists there today. So. Yeah, so I did that for, did the stadium for three years, did that for three years, and then um, ended up coming back to work on Skydome. Came back. So as you say, six years out west, what brought you back to Toronto in 1987 to work on the construction and opening of Skydome? Well, again, the intrigue of the project. Uh, Without a doubt, Chuck Magwood, who was the president and CEO at the time, had come to Vancouver. Uh, I'd met him at Expo. You know, expressed some interest that, you know, once the fair was over, I, I could have gone back to my old job at BC Place. But uh, Chuck convinced me that this was the place to be. Uh, my wife and I decided that we were both from t- the Toronto area. My wife is from Toronto. We were going to go home at some point, and this was just a good opportunity to go. Well, it was an amazing experience, I'm sure. The highlight being June 3rd, 1989. What are your memories, Bob, of the opening of Skydome? And there, there was some excitement, needless to say. Uh, yes, I remember a really bad rainstorm when we opened the roof. I think those lawsuits have been settled today, 30 years later. <laughs> I hope so. But, uh, I hope so. Yeah, no, and look at it. It was just, uh, again, tremendous event put on by really the Skydome Corporation as the grand opening before, I think, a Monday Blue Jays game. But again, building full, people were so excited to see it because we hadn't really done any public tours or public uh, uh, openings at all prior to the... So for people to literally walk into that stadium bowl and look up, it people were like, and they were for the next three years, wowed at, at the technology that was in place. And yeah, we opened the roof <laughs> in a rainstorm, but the uh, pair of, the jumpers actually did make it down into the uh, into the bowl, but... Yeah, it was, that was not a it was not a fun ending, but 
anyways, we can all laugh about it today. Absolutely. These things happen. And it, as you note, it was state of the art. I mean, it was just a game changer. Eight years, two World Series wins later. Bob, what are your biggest memories of uh, being in Skydome? Well, I'd lie if I didn't say it was Joe Carter's home run. I mean, yeah. It was uh, just the whole excitement, let alone of the people in the venue, but certainly the city itself, just to do it in that dramatic fashion. And so it, um, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, we had a bunch of great events. We had a bunch of great concerts, uh, you know, long, long list of, you know, top 10 artists that, uh, you know, performed there and entertained a lot of people in the, in the GTA. But I, again, I'm a sports guy at heart. So it, sure. would, been, uh, it would, it would have been that event. I'm particularly interested in your viewpoint, Bob. It's it's only been 30 years, over 30 years <laughs> since, but we talk about Skydome now, Rogers Center, like, oh my God, it's how can we possibly play in this place? As you know, they've undergone some extensive renovations to, I guess, buy some more time, but it's almost a done deal that there's going to be a new stadium. Do you see that new stadium being put adjacent to the current Rogers Center? Should they implode Skydome and put it on top of that current site or should we be putting a new stadium in the suburbs or somewhere outside downtown? What's your viewpoint? Well, I'm a big believer that uh, downtown venues both are an advantage to the fan and also, let alone, uh, just the whole commercialization of what is a very, very big investment these days, as you would know. Yeah, a lot of people at the time, you'll recall that the Skydome site was a bit of a wasteland. You know, it was south of the tracks and there wasn't a hell of a lot south of the tracks. Now there's about 400 condos, but, you know, at the time it was even considered not downtown and mm. just, but access to the transit was, uh, was a big deal, was a, a big plus. And um, as we saw, it was the instigator of a significant amount of development all around it, as, it, as you see today. And I'm a little biased because I still love the building, but, you know, if, if the only difference would be grass versus artificial turf. I, I would still be of the mindset invested in the current venue and not kid yourself that you're going to be able to find another site. Number one, you got to find a site. Number two, do you implode it on that site? Well, there you go. You get six years, five years to build it. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of plus and as a minuses, and you know maybe as a true baseball fan, everyone would prefer to be outdoor and everyone would prefer to have grass. But uh, I'm not sure that they'll ever see it. It's amazing how times change. It certainly is. Bob, in, in the late 1990s, you moved over to Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, where you oversaw five different venues, including, of course, the home of the Leafs and Raptors, the Air Canada Centre. What took you over to MLSE? Well, I had taken a um, four-year hiatus out of sports. I'd gone into, I would call it um, outsourced facility management and uh, property management and uh, worked for a company that was owned. The one significant owner was SNC-Lavalin. So we were based out of Ottawa. We were doing a lot of work for the federal government. We were managing their properties across the country. I did that for four years, and then my former boss, Richard Petty, uh, called and said, look, I'm, I'm, I really need somebody to come and run the venue. And, and would you be interested? In and at the time, it was just the Raptors. So I was there five weeks. Uh, Alan Slade also convinced me to uh, join the company. And then we got bought by the Leafs. So 
we all thought we were going to get fired. <laughs> and 25 years later. <laughs> so, but an exciting project, needless to say, obviously, again, right downtown, right on transit line, a great, lo great location. And, and unfortunately, a bit of a limited uh, size physically because of the size of the site. But, um, you know, today you built, you, everyone's building a, over a million square feet and that building is only about 660. So there are limitations to it. But once the Leaf bought us, uh, put a bunch more money into it to hockeyize it, it uh, I think the final result is, has done the city well and done yes. the ownership well. So again, Richard convinced me to come over. He's very convincing. <laughs> yeah, and, obviously. Uh, I, knew, I knew some of the team already, Tom Anselmi and Ian Clark. And uh, so, yeah, I was quite excited. And I would say MLSC might be the first to kind of build this concept of it's not just the sports, it's the real sports bar and grill. It's the condo development around it, all these kind of other uses, almost like a real estate project now. Would you have been involved in that? And do you see this as kind of one of the first innovators in this kind of full package concept? Uh, yes and no. We use the model, although we were a little bit behind them, planning in, in LA, all around Staples Center. I don't know what it's called now. It's some Bitcoin company now. Yes. Oh, crypto something. And their plans, uh, Boston as well, have now proceeded to do it, but at the time we're also talking about it. It was really a, a, an opportunity to maximize the value of the property around us. And, and rather than acquire those properties, we partnered with developers on those properties. But certainly from the standpoint of, you know, taking a significant uh, piece of the real estate in a real sports 11, uh, and then what was uh, real sports retail, it was it was a big undertaking. And yes, I was involved with senior leadership in making those decisions. And um, most of those decisions, thank God, all worked out. Course, so. <laughs> and that whole area, as you know, Bob, has become such a touchstone for whenever the playoffs come, fans congregate, Jurassic Park for the Raptors. And of course, for the Leafs, everyone's going to hopefully be uh, congregating again for a long run. But it's really become the center of the whole fan experience. You don't necessarily have to be in the arenas per se to be part of the experience. Yeah, and I think we all are sur pleasantly sur uh, surprised at how the whole Jurassic Park Leaf Nations worked out, certainly for the playoff games. And, uh, you know, what, what again, a great opportunity for the, the fans to come together in a concerted effort in standing in a street to watch the playoff games. And so, yes, it was uh, quite exciting. And needless to say, the, the probably the biggest was the Raptor win. You know, Leafs initially uh, some good playoff runs. Hopefully this year we'll be back again. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it, um, the whole area again, which was part of that wasteland between us and Skydome, has been unbelievable unbelievably developed so yeah and bob i understand you got some jewelry from your uh, experience <laughs> with uh mlse well i don't have a leaf ring which is disappointing but i do have a raptor ring i do have a uh tfc ring and i do have a marley's ring 
So, All right. And do you yeah. wear them out when you go out or uh, do you keep them? Uh, not very often. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a garish jewelry guy. But <laughs> yes, I, uh, I do. When it, people are Raptors fans, I will sneak them out. Okay. That's good. Now, after 25 years at MLSE, you retired in January 2019, but apparently not retired. The owner of the Toronto Wolfpack Rugby Club sought you out, and apparently he made you an offer that you couldn't refuse. Well, he had to teach me how the game was played first. Yeah. But, um, no, and it, it, was, uh, it was an exciting, I would say, about almost 20 months before we had to hang it up because of COVID. Um, but yes, it was a, a very exciting sport. You know, we we you know took the fan base from let's call it probably six thousand to eight or nine thousand per, per home game, and then in the last or in the, uh, my first year there, we were able to win uh, the the championship and get promoted to the Super League. So there was a lot of positive things happening with the team. We had a very very talented team, which uh, David and and our uh, coach and GM had built. And um, the only struggle with it was it didn't make any economic sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, no matter how hard we tried, the whole transatlantic movement or participation in a, a league with 11 other teams uh, where we were paying for them to come to us, um, mm -hmm. at the, mo the, the model was broken. And I think I tried to convince David of that, but he was uh, hell-bent that we were going to make it work and being promoted to the super league where you started to get bigger t television distribution revenue probably could have got us there and then COVID hit so but it was it was a lot of fun david argyle is a great guy to work with um yeah i'm not sure that he made me an offer that i couldn't refuse <laughs> <laughs> well it was certainly but i had a lot of i had a lot of fun at it well, it was certainly a good challenge for you. You were CEO and chairman of the Toronto Wolfpack Rugby Club. As you note, this was the world's first transatlantic sports team. And one of your goals and challenges was reshaping the fan experience at Lamport Stadium. And of course, you talk about how COVID really affected everything. But Bob, I wonder if this transatlantic model could be a proxy for, as you know, the NHL, the NFL, NBA, they're all trying to expand globally. What can we learn from your experience or what would you say with lessons you learned about trying to expand globally well again i think it can be done if the revenues are there but you know in professional rugby i mean even when i think of the uk and some of our uh other teams i mean a top price rugby tickets call it 50 dollars. like that's top price you know and and sure, they some of the bigger communities there. Leeds, being an example, had a, a big stadium, big revenues, so they could make a go of it. But no one was making any money, and mm -hmm. so you know, unfortunately, like everything, player salaries were starting to escalate. So if if the revenues are there, and typically you're going to see it out of out of television and or network and or social media or whatever out of sponsorship, then yeah, you can make a go of it, but to, you know, we had to have a full training grounds here, full training grounds over there, because we spent so much time over there. Your costs are significant. And so I think it's a tough go at the best of times. Leagues like the NHL and NFL can cover a lot of their sins. Smaller leagues with very small revenue bases uh, have a tough time making a go of it. Well, as you know, basically because of COVID, 
the Toronto Wolfpack had to cease operations. But I understand that they're going to be reborn and playing in the North American Rugby League. So I guess we'll have some uh, good rugby coming back to Toronto. Yeah, I hope so. Again, we had a good fan base. They were very loyal. A lot of expats, so uh, a lot of the UK people. But they loved the game. And, uh, you know, we were able to deliver sort of top-level rugby league. So they were seeing some very, very good athletes. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Bob Hunter, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got other entrepreneurs and sports executives, including David Cinnamon, Mark Kohan, Nelson Millman, Bob Stelic, and Bob Nicholson. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. And now we are going to move into your latest chapter, the world of esports. And before you tell us how and why you moved, a quick explanation for the benefit of both myself and our listeners. Esports is short for electronic sports, a form of competition using video games. Esports often take the form of organized multiplayer video game competitions between players as individuals or in teams. Bob, you joined the Overactive Media Group, one of the largest esports ownership groups globally, with its worldwide headquarters right here in Toronto. Tell us about what intrigued you about getting involved in esports. Well, Chris uh, Overholt, uh, the, the CEO who unfortunately just announced he was he was going to be leaving for another opportunity, and I had worked together uh, years ago at MLSE, and he and I had you know continued to talk over the years when he was um, working in the States with uh, both the NFL and uh, the NHL. Uh, and then Chris was executive COO and then CEO of the Canadian Olympic Association for 10 years. And so we were always communicating uh, probably more socially than, than business-wise. Chris had a vision and still has a vision that smaller esports venue in this city could make a go of it. But we all quickly realized that we couldn't really make a go of it unless we had a lot of other events and that those events generally would be concerts. So we worked with Live Nation on, OK, what's the perfect size? Esports now, uh, four to five thousand would be a very big crowd, except on the big, big events. But we worked with them, came up with the model for seven thousand, ran the numbers, made it work, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that assumed about 40 esports events a year. But again, the esports leagues are not yet mature enough to be able to deliver the financials that, that are needed. And so, you know, we have five teams now, uh, two here and three in Europe, and 10 players per team. And then sometimes you've got academy teams uh, behind them. And they are well paid for the sport that they play and some of them very well paid. And so, you know, you've got to be able to make it viable. And again, live events are not yet a mainstream revenue driver. They will be, we hope. And uh, so that was the impetus behind building the building to provide a home for these teams. And we may, we're always looking at acquiring more teams. And so again, it's, it's a competition in the two leagues that we play in, Overwatch and Call of Duty here, 11 other teams in those leagues. It's basically, a, it's it's not a home and away type scenario. You're generally playing in tournaments. Okay. But we do hope eventually that it will be a home and away 
uh, scenario, and that way you're guaranteed. But the, the, again, the revenues don't justify that for that much trouble. Yeah, I mean, we've got a training center, we have coaching staff, we have trainers, we have psychiatrists, we've got the whole gamut. I mean, it is truly professional sports. Average age is 19. But... <laughs> well, I was going to say, I'm blown away by what you're saying. And excuse my ignorance, but I, I'm 53. And I got to be honest, Bob, I do not understand esports and, and its popularity. So why, why don't you educate me on like it, the trend and where is this all heading? Boy, Andrew, that could be the blind leading the blind. Uh, <laughs> um, no. So anyways, and I'll use Call of Duty as an example. We were in a uh, Call of Duty event in, uh, no, sorry, we were in an Overwatch event couple of weeks ago uh, in Boston with our ultra team. Four players on each team on stage facing the audience, sitting at laptops uh, and their own individual screens. They play a different field of the Call of Duty game, and there are a multitude of different fields. And they play four or five different fields in those games. And when I say fields, it's the chase. It's whatever the game is all about. And um, Unfortunately, they're active shooter games, so lots of people get blown up and unfortunately perish. The team is, there's one player who's sort of the, the head person in that game, and then the other three guys are backing him up. So it's all points-based. So you're watching the games, you're watching, I hate to say the kills, but uh, you watch, and that is how it's all scored. And so it's literally, first guy, I'll call it, First guy to a thousand points, and uh, yep. and then you play a series of games and you play a series of matches, and if you advance, you go on to the next round. So it's um finally figured out how the games are played. <laughs> yeah, it is exciting. Like once you know you know the player, yeah, it's playing, and you know the three guys that are backing him up, and you can actually understand exactly. Now I don't understand the mindset, and these and I call them kids. These kids are amazing. Yeah, but um. I've never been a big gamer, so I don't. I can't really say. Well, I was going to ask you how your skills are at Call of Duty now, Bob. Uh, I've played it a few times, and I used to play <laughs> sports sports games with my son. So I'm okay at NHL hockey and NBA basketball, but I'm well, not an active shooter game guy. What a transition, though. I mean, to date, I guess everyone was watching at home on their own screens, and to make it a live event where you're really engaged. I mean, it's going to be quite a transition and, and it's, it's really a totally new experience, right? Yeah, so we've hosted two uh, different um, weekends at uh, Madame Center. Great venue for what, what we need and you know we can get probably 4,000 people there. So watching our teams play uh, and that and watching our fan base. And there is, you know, once the game starts, the people are very, very focused on the game. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of cheering and, and a lot goes on. So it's kind of fun to watch and uh, in the live setting. And that's what we have to continue. And that's what will be the focus on the new venue is an amazing live experience, both from a video standpoint and an audio standpoint, because that's what you need to really juice up the event. So, yeah. Well, you're clearly the guy for it because you've seen it from so many different angles. A big change for you must have been going from Skydome, where you had a, a landlord-tenant relationship with the Blue Jays, you being the landlord, the team being the tenant, to when you went to MLSE, where they owned, you owned, both the venues and the teams. Was this a totally different model or is it not that different? Uh, no, it's a different model for sure. And it's a great model. <laughs> it is 
you know, because Richard Petty at the time called all the shots. The teams were very tight and cohesive with what the objectives of the, of the company were. So from a marketing, from a ticketing, from a sweet sales, from a everything, it was all a very cohesive business model with the Blue Jays. And I, I had a great relationship with the Blue Jays. And, you know, I still consider Paul Beeson to be a good friend. Bob Nicholson, who was the CFO at the time, is a good friend. We worked very hard at a very positive relationship because it was good for both organizations. It's amazing how winning keeps everyone happy. But <laughs> yeah, um, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it just um, there, there is, you know, there's going to be tense times. Their mandate or some of their objectives are different than than yours as, as the owner and the landlord. So, yeah, but um, yeah, MLSD, that whole setup, which still exists today, is uh, is the perfect when you call the shots yeah. because it's all your money. So always good to have control. Yes. Bob, I want to get your thoughts and memories of some of your biggest events, your greatest hits. Let's talk about the World Cup of Hockey 2004. Yes, we had um, uh, we were excited to be awarded that event, and it was the perfect uh, scenario for Toronto, just given the being the mecca. Well, the mecca in this country, Montreal might argue that, but yeah, um, you know, just hosting it for the first time, I think, was also. I mean, there had been Olympics, but this was um, the best of the best, and so I just think that you know it it, it certainly put the venue on the map. I don't think we had a put the Toronto Maple Leafs on the map, but certainly put the venue on the map. And I think showed other, certainly Hockey Canada, who came a couple of times with the uh, World Juniors, what we could accomplish in a, in a one venue. Yes, it was, it was very, very exciting to see those games. Another big one, hosting the NBA All-Star Game 2016. Yeah, it was a, I think it was the coldest week of the year ever in Toronto. <laughs> oh, boy. And, that does uh, a lot for our image, eh? It does a lot for our image. I'm still taking abuse from some of my counterparts in the U.S. who traveled here. But no, again, you know, we really laid it on. <laughs> and I say that because, you know, every owner who hosts the games wants to impress, let alone the last owner who who hosted the games, but their fellow owners. And so... You know, our chairman, Larry Tenenbaum, was very, very involved and, and uh, wanted to make sure that the whole NBA executive team and all the ownership groups were very, very well taken care of. And, you know, the game is the exciting part. That's what it's all about. But the social aspect all around it is equally as important. And uh, so, yeah, we were we we're proud of the final result i mean literally the only bad part was it was really cold yeah and uh i don't think a lot of people brought their winter yeah. <laughs> coats so yeah i don't think they thought it would be that cold but it was uh it was still a great event and yes one of one of my big members another area that you were involved in is concerts and when you talk about huge concerts we talk about celine dion you too what was your experience and how different we're putting on those type of events versus uh, major sporting events? Sort of the in and out is always stressful for sure because they're very costly. They want to get in and out quickly, uh, try and try and control their costs. I mean, the the ones that I kind of like were the you know first week with the Rolling Stones and um, you know we did a lot of events that year. The the um, New Year's Eve transitioning from 1999 to 2000. We all thought the world was going to end. <laughs> yeah. um, was uh, tragically hit 
And, uh, you know, that was just an amazing, amazing concert, uh, let alone it being the end of uh, the millennium. But, uh, yeah, I mean, over the years, just some of the, uh, the well, the greatest artists in the world visited Toronto. And, and we were fortunate that they and their people quite liked the venue, only mm. because intimacy, Toronto's a great concert market for selling tickets. You know, you could... It's a premium city for selling tickets. So again, like everything, when they make a lot of money, they're all very happy. Again, we were doing 55 to 60 shows a year, and that's a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm always blown away by the ability to transition these facilities from basketball to hockey to a concert. I guess, would you say it's a technological innovation, or was this always uh, part of the plan when these facilities were built? I think it was always part of the plan. I mean, the challenge is, is that it's very labor intensive and there is no magic button that you can push for those conversions. So hockey to basketball and back is, is, a, is physically, physically very demanding. And yet you have so little time to do it. And like a quick sidebar, uh, one year, I can't remember what year it was, our staff went on strike our conversion staff went on strike. Oh boy. And we did the conversion eight nights in a row. I've never, my back has never been so sore, (laughs) ever. And also there's a million pieces and there's about two guys that know where they go. Oh boy. And so it was, uh, it was a comedy of errors and a lot of, lot of labor, but I have an amazing appreciation for those guys now. And I can say that while I was there, anything they wanted, they got. So, <laughs> well, walk a mile in my shoes. That's the best that's way right. to know what your folks that's are right. doing is to do it yourself. Bob, over your career, you have rubbed shoulders with rock stars and royalty. Do tell, drop some names. Anyone that really impressed you that you've come into contact with, whether a sports celebrity or music celebrity or just a big name. Well, I take great pride in being able to say that I gave a one-on-one tour to the Queen Mother at Skydome. And that one-on-one tour involved her, because we were out of baseball for some reason, she was driving by, having come from a function, and said, what is that? I'd really like to go and see that. (laughs) So I was at work. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was at work, and somebody said, I think the Queen Mother is here. So anyways, that was fun. And she was very pleasant, very, very pleasant. I would just say, you know, the artists that were very impressive as real people would have been Paul McCartney. We gave a significant check to his foundation and he was, you know, you would think, oh, okay, well, thanks. Really appreciate it. But he was very, very uh, appreciative and literally kind of stood there and talked to us for 10 minutes. Pink, surprisingly, is it was a very nice and pleasant surprise for, you know, such a world renowned artist. And, um, because he had played there so much, you know, was kind of involved in a NFL bit at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, bon Jovi was someone that I did get to know. And uh, again, you know, you get the guys out of the spotlight and they're pretty down to earth people. So. Well, on that note, are we ever going to get an NFL team in Toronto, Bob? I uh, certainly would like to think so. I, I think the decision, you know, the, I, I think the money can be found. And I think you can find a location to build a venue. So could be four, you could be $4 billion in the hole by the time you make that commitment. But I think it's, it's in the NFL 
and the NFL owners court. I, I think, do they want to? And and you mentioned international expansion. I mean, we're the easiest international expansion you could do. Do they want to do it? Because, you know, the the big, you know, problem they say, well, you know, we don't want to be seen to be killing the Argos. I'm a big Argo fan, uh, and I love CFL, but I'm not sure that um, that should ever hold you back from putting in an NFL team here. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, I'm optimistic. Uh, I'm not convinced right yet that it's going to come in, in short order at, at all. Will we ever get a second NHL team in the GTA? Uh, that's a loaded question, Andrew, but I will answer <laughs> it. Um, no, I, I actually, I don't think so. I don't, you know, the proof is not, uh, sorry, if you look at the examples where they exist, and they exist, you know, in L.A. with um, the Ducks and with um, the Kings, but even those are big markets, like those are massive, massive markets. Mm-hmm. If you look at New York, it's always, I mean, one of those teams, no matter what, is always struggling. And what, and it was the Islanders for a long time until they built a new building. The Devils, you know, um, I think based on how well they're playing. But those three fight it out. And um, I, I'm just not convinced that Toronto needs a second team. And it's not selfish on behalf of the Leafs. I think it would kill any chances of Hamilton ever getting a team, if mm-hmm. there's a chance that Hamilton will get a team. I don't think it would be good for Buffalo. Um, and I think those are key factors in the decision-making process. You know, the Leafs, and I know because we, I watched this thing in Markham very closely, the, the Leafs could, you know, extend their muscles if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we think legally without much difficulty. But reality is, um, I don't know whether the market can handle it. You think about... Your key revenue streams being tickets, sponsorships, premium seating sales, and other events. That's that's the formula to make it work. And no one's going to give up the other events. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it would struggle. And, and again, as we've seen, and it's generally is the case, I think Las Vegas were the exception. It's going to take years to build a team. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know whether you can make the economics work. And I think that's what happened in Markham. They, they were going down a certain path. And I think one of the bankers um, said, you know what? I'm not sure this is going to work. So, Well, it's an interesting question whether it's a fixed pie or whether it's a pie that could be grown. And I guess yeah. it'll be a question that continues forever in this market. Yeah. I also want to get your view on the venue is no longer just the venue. I want to give a shout out to my little brother, Lawrence, who is with Golf Canada. And they've made the Canadian Open such an impressive event. It's not just a golf tournament. It's got rock concerts. They had Flo Rida and Maroon 5 last year. They got fan engagement from the hockey rink hole. And they've truly made it an event. Uh, Of course, heads up, they're about to break ground on a new home base in Caledon. Bob, I wondered your view on kind of, it's not just what happens in the competition, it's everything around it. And is that kind of the future of sports? Uh, certainly any break, any opportunity, any stagnant part of an event needs to be filled these days. And I don't say stagnant is probably a very poor word to use it. You know, people, when the Raptors came and started to produce events like 
a very typical NBA team. I think people were like, whoa, that music's awfully loud. That's, you know, give me a break. <laughs> give me a break. In hockey, they were still turning the lights down <laughs> at missions. Yeah. So I think there's just uh, an element. And, and, and it's, again, changing demographics. One aging on the way out and one new one that really expects high entertainment. I mean, if they're not on your phone, they want to be entertained. Yeah. And so I, I just think that, um, that it is the way of the future if it isn't already here today. And, you know, I think any any sport has got to be looking at it. I mean, we, we had it at Wolfpack. You know, we built these big halftime shows or, and um, it, it's it's an expectation. Yeah. And I did see your brother at a conference in London two, three weeks ago, so... Well, he's done a great job with his team making it an experience. And I, like, I personally am not a big golfer, but I, I loved the whole experience of being there. And so, as you say, it's, it's the way it's going. I'm very happy that this completes my series of interviews with Toronto sports executives named Bob. We've also on the podcast had Bob Stelic, Bob Nicholson, Nelson, Bob Millman. You've mentioned your friends with Bob Nicholson. I want to ask about your experiences with any of these gentlemen. Um, yeah, all, all, all friends, um, certainly um, Bob Stelic, I was connected when he was still somewhat part of the Leafs when we, when we were bought. Uh, but then, you know, he's obviously stayed in, in um, the, that sports business ever since. Uh, Bob Nicholson and I worked together for, oh, uh, quite, a, quite a while, probably eight years, uh, both in the building of Skydome and in the first five years of operation. Bob Nicholson's wife was in my class in university. So uh, we're friends through that uh, social connection. But no, I think again, it's just um, it, it, in Toronto, it's surprising that being such a big business that um, there's a tight connection amongst um, all those people that have stayed in sports. And so, uh, yeah, I can say that most of them are good friends. Well, that's excellent. Well, as we close up, and I appreciate all your time, you're clearly working hard on the esports venue, but what other projects might you be working on, or is this your sole focus, and where can we follow how the project's going? Well, we're, as I say, we're in a bit of a, uh, a redesigned stage at the moment, uh, probably releasing some details once we get back in front of city planning. Uh, in the next couple of months. But again, as our target, as I mentioned, is uh, post Labor Day, early October to get a, sh a shovel in the ground. I do work on other projects. I have uh, a couple of other significance on the go. I'm doing a large restaurant for a company I can't disclose. Uh, and I still do uh, work in the US for two different firms on contract and they are, they're project related. So Yes, so always keeping busy. Excellent. And are, are you on social media? Do you like people to follow you or does he just no. stay off of all that? <laughs> no. <laughs> Andrew, I don't know where people find time to be active on social media. Now, well, you're, it may you're be your so business, so you need to be. Yeah. But no, well, I do not. As, as you've noted with everything going on with sports, it's the same here. That continues to evolve. Well, I want to thank you for your time and I want to wish you continued success with the esports projects and uh, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime, Andrew. Thank you.
All and right. to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Bob Hunter, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.